You're listening to the ASI Podcast. My name is Russ Shaw. This is Season 6, Episode 24. Animals in the woods, stuck outside. All the looks where everyone analyzed. Every note and criticize. Hear your voice, scream my name. Stuck inside, lost in your maze. Waterfalls, push and pull. Waterfalls, push and pull. Learn to lie, learn to band with a brand new album, Rain Wolf. That song is called Over and Over Again. Yes, exactly. Over and Over. Spelled like not the stuff that comes out of the sky here a lot. Here in the Seattle metro area, I should say local to me, Rain Wolf. Rain, as in rain, as in reigning king in the kingdom Okay, Rain Wolf. Hey, there's a Spotify playlist for this podcast, by the way. If you go to ASI Podcast Bumps, follow the playlist. If you like the music, follow the bands. You know, you get notifications when they're on tour, they come to your town, uh, merch, stuff like that. Keeps my nose clean with the recording industry. Anyway, today's show... Value, trust, mega churches, and 12 steps. Uh, thinking out loud here in this episode, wanted to kind of bounce some things off you, the listeners. Some stuff been wrestling with, you know, things I've said in the past, this being season six, going back and reevaluating some of the things I've said on the show throughout the years, uh, correspondences I've had. And a lot of this came to mind via a conversation I had with a friend, some friends uh, talking about 12 step and how when it comes to the life lessons I've learned, I revert back to some of this recovery language. And for them, they're like, Russ, it doesn't have a huge success rate, all right? It, it, it doesn't have much of a success rate at all, actually. And I think that the numbers for that, to be fair, and listen, I like 12-step, all right? I think that I gained some real valuable stuff from the 12-step process, uh, Bill W.'s process. I have issues with it, but there's still things, very important things, I think, to be gleaned from the 12 steps. My biggest criticism has been uh, demonizing like alcohol, for example, saying that alcohol is the problem. Like you have a gene and, you know, it's not you, it's alcohol. You have a disease uh, and alcohol has taken you over, and now you have to break up with alcohol, right? That's kind of my metaphor. Um, it's like this chemical romance that you have. I had several chemical romances. Uh, alcohol is still one that I, I, I still consume alcohol. I, I have self-control in that area where I didn't used to, all right? Part of my story, I was forced into rehab when I was 16 years old. Um, I was probably a full-blown alcoholic at around 15. Uh, 
broke into my stepfather's house, drank a half gallon of rum, died, stopped breathing, heart stopped. Uh, this happened several times on my way to the hospital more than, I don't know, my mom told me that they thought they lost me. I think the longest I was flatlined was two and a half minutes. Anyway, I've told this story before. But the state of Washington said, uh, because you broke and entering, broke into your stepfather's house, you can either go to rehab or you can go to jail. And I chose rehab instead of a juvenile jail, which because, you know, I'm not, not going to do that. Right. My mom didn't have my mom was self-employed. We didn't have health care, that kind of thing. They actually I don't remember having to pay for it. Uh, my mom, God rest her soul, is no longer with us. I'm not sure if she paid for it. But anyway, I went to rehab, all right? This is where I learned about the 12 steps. And keep in mind, I was reluctant, you know, arms folded, sitting back in my chair. My heart was not in it. I was there because I had to be. And listen, just thinking out loud here, not that I've done any behavioral science research around this, but could it be why there's such a low rate of success among folks who show up at a 12-step meeting, for example? And this is where my critique on demonizing alcohol, a.k.a., right, also known as coping mechanism, uh, has something to do with the definition of disease here. And again, this is my opinion. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not Mr. Uh, I've studied a lot of social science and psychological information, not an expert, but again, thinking out loud here. And so what if Bill W., as a great writer of literature or theater right? Trying to understand his own story, what he's going through in his life at that time. The, the disease, what 12-step or recovery culture refers to as the disease, right? The disease is alcohol. The disease is sex addiction in SA groups, right? You, you have a disease. I've talked about that from the beginning, um, that I believe, and I've believed for a long time, that the disease is in the heart, right? The heart being this metaphor the ancient Hebrews had for what pumping blood, right? The, the heart's pumping blood from center out to our fingertips, to the tips of our toes. Um, the heart is also pumping motivation. So the spiritual metaphor of heart is that, right? It's the motivator. It's where your motivation comes from. It's why we get up every day. It's why we love who we love. It's why we care about what we care about. It's why we value what we value. So heart. And again, we go into the artistry of words and language and how people think about these things, right? Because heart is a metaphor. If you think of heart in the clinical, you know, in the nutsy, boltsy, you know, you start talking about your heart, somebody's going to give you a number to a cardiologist, right? So my curiosity around this as a writer, you know, as an artist, even as I hear these concepts coming from friends of mine, one of my friends who hasn't been to, you know, any kind of rehab or recovery, 
but he could relate to the complexity of relationships in this sort of black and white way of looking at things, right? Like you have a disease, you need a cure. So you're going to have to go to this group and trust these people, right? With the cure that they, that is the steps. Okay. So you, so you enter into a relationship or into an organization that's to provide recovery or help. And that was another thing that had me thinking about the failure rate of 12 step because he was talking about valuing people, you know, the value in relationships, uh, having certain people in your life. And he said he grew up in, in a house, in a household, uh, very religious uh, where it was zero or a hundred, like, that was kind of their worldview. You either totally trust someone or you don't trust them at all. Right. So zero is anybody you don't know, you know, and then once you kind of let them into your life and you, you choose this emotional thing comes over you and you feel like you can trust that person. You just kind of totally trust that person. I think is what he was talking about. Like I can relate to the number system, right? Do you trust someone that being, uh, okay, I trust you hundred percent, right? I got hundred percent trust in you, buddy. I don't know if it's a, it's a number thing. And that's maybe what I'm struggling with is assigning a number to it too dualistic. And is the success rate of some 12 step groups or organizations, um, is there a, a valuing of the system over the very complex, colorful, not black and white, right? Um, understanding of, of people, you know, of how people feel, how people, my friend Jay Stringer's book from a few episodes ago, he talks about the uniqueness of this not being black and white, but being as colorful as the spectrum of, of different individuals and what they've been through. Uh, dualism, to unpack that really quick, uh, Richard Rohr is someone that I've gleaned some of this information from on dualism. You know, we have this black and whites in our lives. Uh, a lot of evangelical Christianity, Catholics, uh, a lot of Christianity in general, and maybe other religions too, have a sort of real black and white kind of worldview. This is always good. That's always bad. That over there, you know, uh, this is unrighteous or wicked. Uh, this is holy. Uh, this is the correct way of looking at things. That is the wrong way of doing it or seeing it even. Uh, even in science, you have atheists or college professors who say, you know, there is no God. And if you start even talking about anything outside of what we teach here as far as science, because we got the science, man. How dare you interject something outside of our tight little black and white meaning box? Right. Like you're not allowed to introduce mystery at all. And if you do, you get a bad grade because we believe 
there is no God and there's an answer for everything. See, that's the same kind of dualistic attitude that religion has, right? Like there is a God, God is this, you know, God has these attributes, God values this, there's heaven and hell. And if you don't believe that, you're going to hell, you know. So there's like you must think like we do. Like I cannot, I don't have any um, tolerance for people outside of my the sphere of duality. Does that make sense? So duality in relationship kind of looks like that. Like you either, you either believe what I believe or you're a zero on my value list as far as a, as a, you know, a human being, not that you would kill that person or something like that. Right. But you just think they're morons. I was thinking about the, uh, Ken Ham and Bill Nye the Science Guy debate a, a few years back. Like, that was so ridiculous. Like, two people, two totally dualistic men talking about different sides of the issue of, of spirituality or is, does God exist, you know? Like, come on, man. Like, is that even interesting to listen to those guys debate? Like, dear Lord. Um, but that's a good example of, uh, of dualism. And I think it's also flooded our social consciousness. Like we are more divided here in the United States than any time, I think, in history. I don't know. Uh, I'm 50 years old, right? Like I was born when MLK was shot. Is this the human condition? Is it part of our ego that we tend to, you know, knee jerk into duality, you know? Excuse me if I'm squeaking a little bit here. I'm wearing my leather jacket here in the studio. It's a little cold. I'm wearing my leather biker jacket because uh, that's how I roll today. I know. I went a little sidebar on you there to solve the dissonance of the <laughs> the dissonance of the, the squeaky jacket. Um here on a studio mic wearing this jacket that's why this is a this is if this ever becomes too polished <laughs> you know i can't i can't do that to you my point where was i my point is going back to why i'm bringing all this up and my friend's question and in, in him talking about this you know scale of 1 to 100 how much do you trust uh pastor so and so or your sponsor, uh, recovery group leader, the scale, that's one way of thinking about it. Also, reflecting on some of the shows in the past, I, I talked about, hey, go see a pastor, you know, especially if you're, you don't have money, go see a mental health professional. Not all therapists are great. You know, there's some sour apples out there. Not everybody is going to go to a counselor and, and go, wow, that was really great. Um, for some, uh, you're going to have to do some work in that area, but so here's the deal. Duality. All right. Back to my point on duality. Uh, folks will go to a church and a lot of folks, because they go on Sunday and they hear the pastor speak and the pastor talks about his or her life, you know, and they, they let people in to their lives somewhat, right? They're the person on the stage and they speak about how they translate the Bible or whatever. And so you feel like you know them. So it, it feels 
I'm using this language because it's important. You feel you have a relationship with them, so it's easier to let them into your life. So you go into their office and talk about having a compulsive porn habit or addiction, right? And not everyone is met with this priestly, right, loving, pastorly uh, advice. And honestly, there's not a whole lot of pastor can do unless, you know, unless they are a psychologist. Uh, one of the things that, that this happened to me, and I talked about this in some of the early shows, is going to a pastor and having him slide business cards to counselors at me, right? And and I had, had no money and no uh, mental health care coverage on my insurance. So it just felt like he was, you know, wanting me to... And, and maybe there was part of that there, right? Like he was not wanting to see this dirty part of me. That's how I took it, all right? That's not him. That's not on him. He was doing the responsible thing of saying, hey, you know, I'm not really equipped to handle this. Here's some folks that are. Uh, good luck. That wasn't his attitude. But I think I talked about that in the early shows. I said I felt like that was his attitude. But again, this was some of my own damage, this was some of my own processing of shame when when he didn't have the answers for me then i got kind of closed off and and i'm like that that hurt my trust barrier so i think that i had some of that trust thing too like i can trust this guy 100% i've heard him on stage talking about his family talking about his struggles talking about his doubt unpacking first corinthians right you know, um, Ephesians, I've heard him do really cool. Like this guy knows the Bible so I can trust him hundred percent with my story. And, and I'm just telling you that that's not always the case. Pastors and, and clergymen, clergy women, they're, they're human. And sometimes part of that humanity is having a very small sphere of understandable influence. And again, going back to how everyone has a unique understanding of their own lives, of their own stories. Me, for example, standing here in my Metallica shirt, took off my leather jacket now, uh, but my leather biker jacket and my Metallica shirt, most, you know, clergy folks would take one look at me and go, oh, you can't trust that guy. Odds are he's on drugs and probably worships the devil. You know, like, and for me, even entering into looking for help, I distrusted church. I distrusted religious folks. And it was a, it was a church that really helped me, that really talked me down from the ledge in, in my story. So for me to, to go into a pastor's office and, and actually get good sound counsel and instruction and, and and not even that like they were just there and loved me in the place where I was at they listened they valued me I felt valued as a person in their office uh, they just didn't just slide cards at me and say you know go see this counselor or that psychologist uh, 
not that that's bad, but again, it's the energy that we do it in. Do we value that person sitting across from us or we feel like we're going through the motions? Is this a job? Um, I felt valued by those guys. But yeah, for me, also very dualistic in my judgment of them. Another thing that some of you listeners may relate to, and I hesitate to call myself an addict, right? That's some of that recovery language. As an addict, um, as someone in, in this is going back to behavioral science, by the way, this is really is some of the research and brain mapping and understanding our genetic code. You know, uh, in 12 step, they say that, they're, you know, alcoholics have a gene the truth of the matter, the science is saying that what the genetic markers are are impulse control. So as someone with impulse control issues, when I was in those, that place with Pastor Rick and Pastor Dan, uh, one of the things that I started to do, and, and wasn't even conscious of at the time, looking back, I could see it now. And in some of the early shows, I was really a guy with the answers, right? Like, I can, oh my gosh, I feel safe here. I can trust these guys and answers. Uh, even Rick said that, you know, number five alive. Remember that movie? I don't know if you saw that's an old movie, Short Circuit from the 80s. And, and number five alive, need input. It's like you, you, you wake up. And I don't know if it's an awakening as much as it was a, I just shared some deep part of myself that I haven't shared with anyone else. And you didn't reject me. As a matter of fact, you had a few answers for why uh, I may be doing this, right? So then I think I valued answers and knowledge more than I valued the relationships and the people, you know? The stories, the the intersections, the collisions even in my interaction with others. See, for me, the irony of learning more information brings that kind of peace for a day, right? Like learning something you'll probably never use, but you learn it and you go, oh, that's great. That's cool. That feels feels like freedom a little bit that I know that now. Now you may forget it in three weeks, right? Seeking answers isn't a bad thing. You know, gleaning wisdom, growing in wisdom is good, but it can also be impulsive, right? That impulse control. Is that better than constantly having sexual fantasies all day long? Um, I don't know, maybe the point is it's still impulsive, right? Learning this other new stuff. And then, and then there's the, the more meaningful stuff where Christianity, religion tends to, to really bring the feels when someone gives us answers that help build our security in ourselves, maybe in our lives, maybe circumstances have something to do with it. I find that term, don't shoot the messenger, interesting because we gather information from other humans, right? Like we live in a society, most of us, if you're listening to me today, civilization 
is the the result of a gathering of wisdom to live life together in a way that's fruitful, you know, hopefully beneficial to other humans in the society. It's funny how there's people who will, you know, you want to disconnect, like I want to get off the grid and, and people will go out, live in the woods, you know, for maybe a week and then realize it's cold out there and food is not easy to come by and the bathroom situation, uh, showering, right? We, we come back to civilization because all of the combined wisdom has made a place where we feel like life is good here. Or... Is there a message that we received from outside that has tainted some of those those feelings, right? Or some of the some of that outlook on life, some of our uh, own understanding of self worth can go right out the window. For example, um, the battered wife is that an impulse to just forgive the husband without? the hard work of making amends on his part, right? The church who has the guy who did the thing and we're just going to sweep that under the rug and hope it doesn't happen again because impulsively that guy has the answers, right? That guy, man, he leads and he's doing this thing and he's he's a man of God or whatever, right? We trust the individual who brings the message that creates the feels without the discernment and the stopping and going, wait. This is where the 12 steps can be really helpful. This is where, you know, step eight and step nine on making amends, making a list, having a, a contrite heart, as the Bible would say, and wanting to seek. Um, this, this is on the the perpetrator's part, right? Like the, the 12 steps are written to the person who's blown their life up, who's broken trust. So step eight and step nine are, uh, I'm going to try and make amends. Like I'm going to try and repair these relationships. I'm going to try and build trust where trust has been shattered and broken. And I know that in spades, man. I used to talk a lot about battle you know, and the battlefield in some of the earlier shows, war metaphor, right? Um, there's something to that. Like I have a friend, Pico, he was on this show, uh, season three or something. I can't remember. Uh, but Pico signed up for the Navy because 9-11 happened at the time. And he, you know, felt this wanting to be there for his country, wanting to push back what's evil in the world as he understood evil, right? And and so he joined the military with that kind of heart. Um, others I've known over the years have joined the military because, you know, Uncle Sam is standing there, right? We want you. And some folks in a depressed economy, especially, like... And there's, you know, hey, there's some good things in the military for getting, you know, college credits and and money for college, uh, the GI Bill. These are motivators to join. Right. But they're more like a carrot and a stick motivators. They're less of a heart thing. 
like my friend Pico. So when it comes to approaching the 12 steps, are we taking marching orders, right? Is that what the steps are? Are they marching orders assigned to us by the Uncle Sam and the poster? We want you sober, right? Because sober people are better than people who get high. Is that kind of how we look at it? Is that the lens in which the heart's approaching recovery feels? Or is it a rebellion against the status quo? See, this is something that I've gathered reading scripture, working to understand the gospels, what Jesus meant by the kingdom of God. You know, in Jesus's presence is the kingdom of God. There's some people that say, oh, you know, because Paul refers to you do these things and you're you're out, you know, you're outside the kingdom of God. Like that means you're going to hell or something. Um, no, there there's something different going on. There's something underlying going on. The, the kingdom of heaven is that stillness, that peace, that being present moment. My friend uh, Peter Rollins, who's a Christian philosopher, uh, writer, speaker, talked about it as like a pirate island. And I believe that was a lot of Jesus's critique towards the Pharisees was you're like blind men leading blind men. That in all of their rules and morality, they're in rebellion against the pirate island the kingdom of God, or even kingdom living. And I'm telling you, one of the ways we can run from that is to just keep feeding our lust for wisdom, right? Or information, or adoration and adornment for the information giver. That's another thing I do admire about the 12 steps is they're not telling you to do certain things, right? The, the 12 steps are in affirming something that's already been done. I have made a fearless and searching moral inventory, right? I've made a list of people I've harmed and have reached out right have did my best to make amends those are past tense uh well, i want to end this show with an emotional word picture all right a a parable okay you have a bunch of hippies right anti-war people they they're protesting war whenever they can and they decide one of the one of the hippies decides hey man because that's how they talk, right? Hey, man, I got an idea. And and the rest of them go, what, dude? And he says, uh, I think we should join the army. And they're like, what? You know, we're we're protesting this. We're we're not, you know, we're not one of them. We're gonna protest war. We we don't like war. We're peaceniks. We value peace and putting down the weapons, not picking them up. And he says, well, what if it ain't all about war, man? What if we could learn a little bit of uh, self-discipline, you know? What if we could have an authority telling us what to do for a while and, and we could learn from him or them or her, but just, you know, just not kill anybody, man. What if we did that? 
what if we could create like a platoon inside the platoon, man? Like a, an army of peace, an army of love, man. And the rest of the hippies kind of scratch their head and they, uh, they decide, okay, so, so they all join the army and they get into boot camp, you know, they make it through, they do all the things. And then they're put in a battle situation, right? They're sent off to war and drill sergeant who they've been following for a while, right? They admire this guy. He's, he's strong. He's smart. He's, he's got good posture, you know? And, and he's shouting at them, pointing into the battlefield. He says, go kill them, kill the enemy, you know? And they're all like, dude, you're so freaking awesome, <laughs> you know? And, and, and this drill sergeant's looking at him like, no, I told you to go fight. And they're like, he speaks with such authority and such power, you know? no get out there no i order you to get out there and they're just like they're just admiring like the way he wears his camouflage pants you know they're like wow look at his haircut man like why didn't we do this haircut thing sooner like that is awesome the reason i tell you the story is i think that church is a lot like that uh and not not just church i think some academics can be like that too where we go, we sit, we, we admire the authority figure who's, who's giving us information. But when it comes to getting on the battlefield, I think the main reason 12-step mostly doesn't work, all right? Now, that's statistics. This is research that's been done that ha- says that, you know, most 12-step groups have a, maybe a 10% success rate. And that's being generous. And I would argue that they're not marching orders. And that's why, right? People go in with the idea that these are marching orders, that I'm going to check off these things on this list and I'll have a better life. That's not what the 12 steps were designed for, I believe. Bill W. was working through his own understanding of his own uh, slow suicide via alcoholism and what was choking out his ability to live. See, the idea of kingdom living is pushing back against the darkness, against the evil. It's, it's living inside of the platoon of love, so to speak, right? It's living inside of this rebellion against the oppression, against the cold, against the sweltering heat of this world. And it's doing so together, not as a unit going out to attack our ideological opponent out there, right? but to work underground, much like the Matrix, right? That Matrix analogy. In the big book of AA, Bill W. doesn't call 12-step a program, right? I think that society and culture has done that over the years. But going back to the original text that this man wrote 
in in his dark place, right? The, the light that he found, the instruction, the wisdom that he was able to gather. He doesn't call it treatment even. He calls it a brotherhood, a sisterhood, family. Step one, when you are at the end of your rope, surrender right? Other people learning to trust, not to simply just get sober. If sobriety is the goal, it just does not work, man. Sobriety is a side effect. See, it's not about joining a side of resistance or rebellion or war metaphor. It's about creating a place where you're standing at the site of resistance. See, some of you may ask, do I still believe in the war? Do I still believe there's a battle going on? Absolutely. The Bible talks about that, the armor of God. The, but it's not against flesh and blood. We, we don't war against other humans as much as the motivators the things that get lodged in the heart and the resistance, right? These movies, The Matrix, Star Wars, you know, you got the resistance, the Avengers, which is different, but right, you understand. I could do a whole show on the Avengers, especially Infinity Wars. Probably not the best analogy for this example, but I digress. See, the problem with some of those metaphors is that they're like a brand, right? And that's part of what we're rebelling against is the brandable thing that we create. And then it automatically becomes tainted with egos, right? Um, planting a flag of substantial change is what I'm talking about here. It's not just changing our outside selves so we can have a happier and healthier life. It's being aware and then changing those foundational systems that we're already a part of. Changing them from the inside out and doing that together and living in these little communities, alert and aware, living in the light, flaws and all. Being a part of the kingdom is living in the insurrection itself. I think that's what 12-step does well. I think that's what good, healthy churches do well. When people can not just live from their cognitive selves. See, that's why I'm so glad some of you are listening, because you know right from wrong, right? You know what's destructive, what may be harming you. There's this habit, this thing that keeps working itself out, even though I know, especially you Christians, right? This, this is wrong to use that. That's, that's the cognitive self coming up with these conclusions. What I'm talking about is living in a way from the inside out where you are living from the experienced self, from the heart even, from what the Greeks would call the bowels. 
See, the cognitive self tends to be focused on the duality of this world, black and white, even picking sides. See, it's not about not picking a side, but realizing a sight, planting a flag, and going, this is where I'm at. That honest, in the light amongst others. Can we create little communities that can do that? Live like that. Encourage, uplift, even protect one another. That's the mystery. That's what I'm wrestling with. That's what I wanted to bring today. And that is the end of the show. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Bye. A.S. I. Or Attitudes of Sexual Integrity is a listener-supported podcast. Do you like what you hear, here? Please leave a review on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher or wherever you may be hearing this podcast. The podcast, Attitudes of Sexual Integrity, is owned by Digital Audio Project LLC who is responsible for its contents. ASI, the podcast and its content is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to replace or substitute for any professional physiological, medical, legal, or other advice. In addition Russ makes no representations or warranties within or through the podcast or website. If you have specific concerns or a situation in which you require professional physiological or medical advice, you should consult with an appropriately trained and qualified specialist. Like the jams we play here on the podcast? Go to asi.org and follow the Kickin' playlist, or search ASI Podcast Bumps on Spotify. Follow the bands if you like the music and get notifications for concert dates, merch, vinyl, and stuff. Okay, bye now.